Hi, welcome back to the Eight Pillars podcast. I'm Kate, and today we will be discussing a lot of the things that I learned from my audiobook that I've recently listened to called The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kishimi, I think is how you pronounce it. And there was so much that I took from listening to this book. I got to be careful to say I didn't I didn't read it, but I did listen to it and I learned a lot and I have already begun using some of the concepts that I learned from this book, so I thought, why not share them? Because I've been learning so much from audiobooks, and like I said in last week's episode, I'm able to go through them so quickly, and I can like take notes on my phone, which is easier to do when you're listening to a book than reading one. And I would highly, highly recommend, even after listening to this episode, that everybody goes and reads or listens to this book, because there was just so much that I tried to cover like my favorite favorite topics but I'm not going to be able to cover everything in this episode so definitely go listen to it but let's just get right into it. So this book is basically all around Adlerian psychology which has to do with the idea that humans are social beings and all of our issues come from our interactions with our interpersonal relationships. So everybody in our lives. This could be people that you're close to, your friends, your family, your significant other, or it could just be people that you're in class with, people that you see at work, any of your interpersonal relationships. So all of the advice that is given in this book somehow connects back to how to interact or view our interpersonal relationships. And the book is basically set up like there is an old man who's supposed to be like the philosopher in this book giving this young kid advice. So this kid is kind of challenging him and asking him questions about all of his theories that he lives by. And the old man is kind of just explaining different scenarios of why he thinks the way he does and why he believes it to be true. So it kind of is in the form of a conversation, the whole book, which I really liked because a lot of the questions that came up in my mind as I was listening to his different thought processes that he goes through that support all of his different theories to live by, the boy would ask him a lot of the questions that I thought of too. So it's kind of nice to listen to it in that form. And honestly, I feel like listening to it as an audiobook rather than reading it is even better because the book's set up like that because you get to hear like the two different voices. So it's like a full conversation. But anyways, moving forward. So like I said, the author really is trying to stress the point that all of our problems stem back to our interpersonal relationships. So if we can learn how to improve them and create more horizontal, equal relationships rather than vertical ones, we can all be much happier and experience much more peace. So let's just get into, I'm kind of just going to go like from topic to topic that were my favorites. So starting off at the beginning of the book, they talk about how the past doesn't control you now. It's the meaning that you assign to the past that controls you now. So our feelings are not what controls us, but we use these feelings as a way to achieve a certain goal that we have in our lives now. So what does this mean? Basically, they're saying that if you had some sort of trauma when you were younger or just a lot of bad experiences growing up, just something in your past, it could even be recent, that event or that person that did something to you is not what's controlling you and like making you a certain way now. It's the meaning that you assign to that event or what that person did to you that is making you the way that you are now. And he goes even further to say that 
you give a certain meaning to an event in your past or you give a certain meaning to what somebody did to you because it supports a goal that you're trying to accomplish now. So almost like an excuse. And I want everybody to take everything that I'm explaining with a grain of salt. I understand that trauma is very real and does impact the way that people are in the present moment, but I do fully believe in mindset is everything and you do kind of have a choice to make something really, really important and influential on your life in the present moment in a negative way. And you have the choice to move past that and try to grow from it rather than dwell on it and use it as an excuse to not grow. So one example that he gives is a kid won't go out because he has anxiety over socializing from something that happened in his childhood. So he's saying something that happened when he was younger makes him anxious now to go out and socialize with people. So what the philosopher was saying in the book was that it's not his childhood that is to blame. It's that he has the goal right now of not going out, even if he doesn't fully realize it. And using his childhood as an excuse to accomplish that goal is what he's doing so that he can avoid what the real problem is. And the real problem is that he has a lack of confidence to go out. So yes, this lack of confidence is probably coming from that childhood event that made him feel insecure now. But the problem is not what happened in his past because that's very unchangeable. It already happened. So to fixate on something and say, yes, this happened in my childhood, therefore I'm not confident enough to go out now, that just sounds very permanent. Like that can't be fixed. When the real problem is that, yes, something might have happened in his childhood that made him insecure and anxious now, but the problem is that he doesn't have enough confidence. That's what the problem is right now. That's the source of the problem and that can be fixed. It can at least be improved, but what happened in his past can't be changed. So for him to fixate on that and blame his not going out on something that happened in his childhood is kind of just an excuse and a reason to accomplish the goal he has right now of not going out because he does not want to deal with the fact that he is not confident. He doesn't want to deal with the actual problem because if he did that, then he would not have an excuse to tell other people of why he doesn't want to go out if he addressed what the real problem was. So I hope that makes sense. And it's not to make light of trauma, but it is a great way to reflect on the potential subconscious goals that we may have in our minds that we use as excuses in order to achieve those goals because we don't want to deal with what the real root issue is. So if you ever find that you're somebody who is constantly going back to some past moment in your life and being like, well, I'm like this today because something happened to me, then maybe you should ask yourself if you have some certain goal subconsciously to not grow from that experience and not grow from whatever personality trait it is that you think you have from that past experience and figure out why you might be so unwilling to grow from this personality trait that you think you've taken on because your personality is not something that's supposed to be permanent. But using your personality in the present moment and past events as reasons why you can't do something now, those are, I don't want to say excuses, but they are you trying to justify a certain goal that you have in your life right now. 
And in the book, he says that when we make these excuses for ourselves of why we can't do something that is scary to us, it's because we're lacking in the courage to be happy. So throughout the whole book, he really goes on and on about talking about courage in a lot of different ways. So the title of the book is The Courage to be Disliked. So I think, and I kind of liked this whole idea that a lot of our issues have to do with our own courage. We're not actually prevented from doing anything or changing anything in our lives. We hold ourselves back from changing things in our lives or changing our personalities or accomplishing certain goals based on the level of courage that we have in these different areas of our lives. And a lot of them have to do with our courage in our interpersonal relationships. So I like how simple that sounds because it gives us like one thing to work on. That's kind of how I took it. Like, okay, if I can just work on building more courage and taking little steps each day to prove to myself that I have the courage to do things that are scary to me, then those scary things will become more easier the more they come up in my life. So if you always are just focusing on how can I have more courage, if there's any sort of interaction you're worried about, maybe like confronting your boss or doing a presentation at work or having a difficult conversation with your significant other, maybe always go back to asking yourself, how can I increase the amount of courage that I have in this given scenario? so that I'm able to get over my fears. And then kind of relating to that, kind of not, something else that I also liked was that he talks about how we're pretty much the ones to blame for all of our own problems because we're the only ones that can control our own emotions. So an example is that he gives is that if somebody spills something on you, like a a waiter walks by and spills a coffee on you and you blow up at them and you get pissed and you yell at them for spilling that on you, then you had a goal of blowing up on someone that day or just in general. You had a goal of blowing up on somebody as a means to make that person feel below you so that you could overpower them. So you didn't blow up because somebody spilled coffee on you. You blew up because you had that goal of yelling at somebody and overpowering them. And that person spilling coffee on you gave you a reason in your mind to achieve that goal. Does that make sense? So I kind of liked this because it did make sense to me. Like not everybody has a temper. Some people are more able to control their emotions than others. And if you find that you have a really bad temper and you're constantly blowing up over little things or trying to blame other people, then maybe that's a time to reflect on yourself and be like, Why do I have these goals of trying to overpower people? Why do I always have these goals of making everything else somebody else's fault? Maybe in some other part of your life, you are feeling insignificant or not feeling like you have what other people might have. You might have some sort of insecurity. So maybe these little outbursts are a means of achieving the goal of feeling above somebody. And that's just one example. Like, you don't just have to relate it to having a temper. So I really liked that one, but now we're going to move on to the next because I have quite a few. So I'm going to try to keep it a little bit shorter. So I did talk about this in my last episode when I was going through things that have been making my life a better place. And this was one of my favorite takeaways from this book. So I also mentioned it last episode briefly, but I'll go a little bit more into depth into it now. So that is the separation of tasks. So this whole concept is basically that people have their own tasks and it's not my task to get somebody to like me. It's also not my task to appeal to other people's desires of who they want me to be. 
So I gave the example last episode about if your parents don't approve of what you do for work. It's not your task to get them to approve of what you do for work and be accepting of whatever you're doing. That's their own task. So it's not your job to worry about trying to change anybody else's tasks because you can't. That's not in your control anyways. Just like it's not in your control to get somebody to like you. That's their own task. And then another thing that I really liked that they mentioned kind of relating to this point is that there's nobody else's expectations that you should be living for. And if you're not living as to appeal to someone else's expectations, then it's also the same to say that no one else is living to appeal to your expectations. So there's no reason to take things to heart if you find that people are not acting in the way that you might want them to act or if you are finding that you're getting offended or taking things personally very often, then if you remember this idea that, okay, I'm not supposed to be living my life to appeal to anybody else's expectations, so other people are also not supposed to be doing the same. They're living to appeal to their own expectations, so it has nothing to do with me, and for that reason, I don't need to worry about taking anything that they're doing to heart. So I really, really liked that one. And then he also went on to say that in order to rid yourself of worry and living a heavy life, you just have to keep reminding yourself that is not my task. And then you should let others do their own tasks without intervening. So doing this will bring us a lot more peace than when we're constantly worried about what other people are thinking, what other people are doing, or assuming that anything that other people are doing has anything to do with us. Okay, and then moving on to my next favorite takeaway. So he talks about if you don't like something about yourself, like your height or your nose or your body, those are all subjective feelings of inferiority that you came up with from comparing yourself to others. That's kind of self-explanatory. I'm sure we all get that. But by doing this and coming up with all these things that you don't like that you got from comparing yourself to others, you basically have told yourself that what you have is negative in your life and your life would be better if you had something else. He goes on to say how if we're already leaving how we view something about ourselves up to something subjective, like comparing ourselves to others, then we can change our choice on how we view that. So basically, we decide if something is an advantage or a disadvantage. We're already looking at somebody that might be taller or skinnier and thinking, oh, my life would be better if I had that. But why don't you look at the people who have something similar to you and think about what positive things do they have that maybe the skinnier or tall, taller person wouldn't be able to have? Like, what is the advantage to what I have? And trying to identify those rather than going along this whole social construct that we have made where value is based on whatever the majority of the collective decides is valuable and what is not. So he gave the example of being short. He said that he used to think that if he was taller, his life would be better because he would maybe be deemed more manly or attractive. And then one day, somebody told him that he's very welcoming and easy to talk to and very approachable, and that he shouldn't want to be taller because if he was, then that might make him less approachable to people or less comforting to speak to. So thinking like this and finding how the quality that you have that you might not love right now is actually an advantage to you in some form that others may not have is a great way to stop abiding by the value that we have decided one quality has over another. So I really liked that one because I think we all have experienced in some form in our lives wanting what we don't have. But why don't we work on finding ways to think about how what we have is an advantage and not a disadvantage 
and stop looking for what we don't have and deciding that that is what is valuable and what I have is not as valuable. Why don't we look at others and think, oh, what they have is beautiful and it's great, but what I have comes with all of these great advantages in my life that I wouldn't have if I had what they had. Okay, and then moving on. So this one might sound a little bit harsh, but I did get his point from it, and I honestly agree now that I get it, so bear with me. But when somebody says, I'm sure we've all heard this or maybe even said it ourselves, you don't get how I feel because you don't know what it's like. How many times have you heard somebody else say that or maybe even said it yourself? You've just been so sure that no one else gets how you feel, like nobody has ever experienced what you've experienced exactly the way that you've experienced it, so they just don't get it. So his point about this was that when people say something like this, they're using their own misfortune to be special. So if they continue to do that, then they will continue to need to view their life as unfortunate in order to feel special. So if you find a lot of times that you're like, oh my God, like of course this happened to me at work. Work's going really bad. My relationships are going really bad. Like nobody gets what it's like. Nobody else has experienced all of these shortcomings that I've been experiencing. And you're always just like finding how unlucky you are and how many things are going wrong in your life and then going and telling people that and just saying, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. Or listening to people give you advice and like going along with it, but then in your mind still being like, they just don't get it. They'll never get it because they're not me. They haven't experienced exactly what I've experienced. If you're stuck in that mindset, then you might be doing this. You might be looking for ways that your life is unfortunate and then using that as the reason why you're special. And when you're in the habit of doing that, you're never going to find all the ways that you are fortunate in your life since you've kind of already decided by doing this all the time that you think you're only special if you're finding all the ways that things are going wrong in your life. So instead, you should want to find other more positive ways to be special and not use proving your point that everything is just so hard for you no matter what to other people as a way to make you feel different or special. Everyone experiences misfortune, but those who are typically more happy do not put an emphasis on their own misfortunate events that happen in their life. Instead, they probably try to flip it into something good, and by doing that, they will be much happier because they are not constantly looking for a new way that their life is so hard so that they can share that with other people. So that was a really great one, and I loved that, and I feel like that can definitely be useful, even if you're not somebody who goes out and complains to people and say, you just don't get it, but you might be doing that in your head and kind of enabling your own complaints and enabling yourself to using your own misfortune as a way to make yourself feel special. Okay, and then moving on, he talks about how it only matters that we move forward. It doesn't matter whether you are behind or in front of other people moving forward. So the only sense of competition you should have is between you and your highest self. So basically, like, if you're all walking on a straight line and you're all moving forward, it doesn't really matter that there's somebody ahead of you and behind you in that line. It only matters that all of you are moving forward because there will always be somebody that is ahead of you and there will always be somebody that is behind you. But even if you're a person who's constantly winning all the time, if you're a person who has placed yourself in constant competition, then you'll never be at peace. 
So if you're always worried about who's in front of you and who's behind you and you're never satisfied enough with just the fact that you're moving forward yourself, then you'll never be fully at peace. So this kind of goes along with what I mentioned at the very beginning, which you might not have known what I was talking about then, but the idea of creating horizontal relationships rather than vertical relationships. Someone in a horizontal relationship is only worried about moving forward on their line. They're not measuring what is above or below them because they're not on a vertical line. They're on a horizontal line. They're only worried about moving forward. There is no up or down. And then kind of another little random point that I just also wanted to throw in there that has to do with our communication in our interpersonal relationships and the idea of having competition constantly. So say you're in an argument with somebody. The moment that you decide that you are right in the conversation, then the goal of that conversation or argument becomes less about the topic and more about a competition of who is right and who is wrong. And then it becomes more about the interpersonal relationship rather than the topic of discussion. So basically that's to say, say you're in an argument with somebody and at the very beginning of the argument, you're like, no, I know I'm right about this and I don't really care what they have to say about it because I'm so sure that I'm right. Then you're not considering at all the topic at hand and you're also not considering that relationship you have in your life so if this is with your significant other and you're deciding at the beginning of the argument that you know you're right and you're not even willing to hear out what they say even though you're still going to have the conversation but you just have it in the back of your mind no I already decided I'm right so anything that they say I'm going to disagree with even if it does have some sense because you decided that you're right so then the whole topic is basically pointless to discuss because you're more worried about being in competition and being right in the conversation with that person than you are about actually solving the issue at hand. And then that says a lot more about your relationship with this person and that are you even really in a relationship with them where you care about being equals and supporting each other's feelings and different views? Or are you more worried about always being right or in competition with this person? And then what kind of relationship even is that if that's your main concern? So I really like that one, especially for people. I think I can even be like this sometimes. If you find yourself not always listening to people when you're having a conversation with them and instead you're trying to think of ways to rebuttal them, then ask yourself what kind of relationship you really have with this person. Do you feel some sort of need to compete with them? And why do you feel the need to do that? Do you have some sort of deep-rooted insecurity that you feel like you need to one-up them or make them feel wrong? And then that's the problem that you need to work on fixing. It's not even what the topic of the conversation is. Okay, and then moving on to the last takeaway that I wanted to bring up. So overall, the goal of this book, I think, that they were trying to get across, that we ultimately are trying to make peace with our interactions in our interpersonal relationships. And by doing this, we will be in harmony with the world. So what is an example of somebody not being in harmony with the world? Someone who is lacking in their harmony with the world will only be able to focus on the negative in their interpersonal relationships. And they might have these toxic traits of constantly being in competition or constantly worrying about other people's tasks and not just worrying about their own. So he gave one example of if we went and met 10 new people, this would probably be the reality of our meeting these 10 new people. And this group of 10 people is kind of to represent just anybody that we meet in our lives in the grand scheme of things. So all of the tons of people that we meet in school, at work, in our neighborhood, 
that we date, that become our friends, that don't become our friends, that we follow on social media. Basically, this these 10 people kind of represent that, if that makes sense. So he says that when you meet these 10 new people, the reality is that two of these people will probably critique you and not like you. One will probably get along with you and love you. And then the other seven won't fit into either of those boxes and they probably just don't care or have any opinion on you. So somebody who's lacking in their harmony with the world will only be able to focus on those two people that don't like them rather than the one that does. And I think hearing this example, you can kind of see how ridiculous that is. How often do we do that really? A lot. How often do you find yourself fixating on something negative that somebody said about you or maybe you heard that so-and-so doesn't like you and they think what you're doing is weird? How often do we fixate on that and then completely forget or act like it's just not a big deal that we have all these friends or even just like two or three close friends who like truly love and care about you? And instead, we're fixating on these people who we don't even know well, and clearly they must not know you well if they have such a strong, bad opinion about you. And we fixate on that rather than thinking about, oh, the only people that I really should be worried about, what they think of me, are the people that actually love and care about me and put an effort into my life. And then another thing that I liked about this example is how only three of the people that he named actually even formed an opinion on you. And that kind of, to me, just represents how not only do we so often get fixated on what possible negative things people think of us, but 85% of the people we meet probably don't even care enough to have an opinion to begin with. So I really liked that too, because I feel like the 10 people example just represents like everyone we've ever met in our lives. We think that everybody thinks something of us or has some sort of opinion and a lot of times it's just not even the case everybody's worried about themselves and they're worrying about their own quote-unquote 10 people you know what I mean like all the people in their lives they're worried about their own so yeah there's going to be a few people who don't like you and there's going to be a few people who want to critique you and judge you but there will also be those people who absolutely love you and those are the only people that you should be thinking of when you're doing anything in your life so yeah I really really loved this book. I absolutely 100% recommend it for anybody. It's probably like my favorite self-help book that I've listened to so far, but even out of the ones that I've read, I love this one. Definitely a favorite. I feel like I learned a lot and I was given a lot of different perspectives that I've actually never thought about before. So I'm really glad that I was able to summarize some of my favorite takeaways and share those with you guys so that you can use them yourself. But yeah, that's all that I got. So thank you so much for listening. Please leave a five-star rating and review if you can. That would be so great. And follow the Eight Pillars Instagram at Eight Pillars Pod. It's also December and on TikTok, I'm doing 30 days of journal prompts, but I'll also be posting them on my Instagram story so you can get them on either platform. But yeah, so thank you so much for listening again and please follow the podcast so that you can see next week's episode.